housing affordability is at an all-time low. A growing percentage of working and middle-class people are being pushed out of their homes and rental units and into poverty and homelessness. A recent documentary explores the housing crisis and profiles one changemaker working hard to push back against the tide and to encourage the recognition of housing as a human right. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs and change makers impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea Change Magazine. For those asking, my recently published book, also titled In the Business of Change, profiling social entrepreneurs around the world, can be found at your local bookstore, at Amazon, or on our website. On today's episode, we speak with Leilani Farah, United Nations Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, and the main subject of the documentary Push that had its North American premiere at Hot Docs in Toronto. In our conversation, Farah explains how it's not gentrification at issue here. Rather, financial players like private equity and asset management firms are commodifying housing, their efforts often supported by pension funds. We also talk about a project she launched, The Shift, which is bringing together stakeholders from around the world in a bid to stem the momentum of these financial players and ultimately recognize housing as a human right for all. In terms of your role, you're actively trying to establish housing as a human right, which is from what I understand and from the movie and from various other um, things that I've read and, and learned along the years is that it is, according to the UN, it is a human right. Is that not correct? I, I, is it just a matter of getting um, states and countries to adopt uh, the type of legislation in their own countries that, that reflect that? Or is it not yet considered an yeah. international human right? Tell no, I mean, that's 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 the uh, that is one irritant for me when people say um, housing should be a human right or something like this. Housing is unequivocally a human right. And governments from around the world have ratified human rights instruments that say housing is a human right. And it, it really does say, I mean, international law says everyone has the right to an adequate standard of living in including adequate housing, food, and clothing. And it, that's the um, sort of principal arti articulation. It's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which is a sort of, it's, it's not an instrument that governments ratify, or you know, they, it, but it's recognized as law. And then there's a, a, a number of instruments that governments do ratify that's, that articulate housing as a human right. So the government of Canada, for example, ratified the International Covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. And that instrument includes the right to housing. So that's okay. no longer an issue. Uh, even if governments want to pretend it is, it is no longer an issue. You are quite right to say the problem is that governments aren't implementing mm. the right to housing and through legislation and policy. So when a government um, engages in housing policy, what they should be doing is they should be examining well, what does the right to adequate housing require of us mm -hmm. and therefore how will we meet those requirements through policy and legislation well that's just simply not happening enough um, it is starting to happen in this country which is really exciting um, because the government of Canada has long refuted that housing is a, a, a human right in any meaningful way and they have come some distance under um, 
um, Justin Trudeau um, some distance. I have to say it's quite remarkable. They're, really? so they're really moving in that direction. So they adopted a national housing strategy, which is really just like a policy, November 2017. And they are now poised to adopt, um, well, they've already adopted legislation that's related to to um, the right to housing, and they're about to make it's, it's still at the committee stage, so it mm-hmm. hasn't quite gone through the, the parliamentary process. Okay, um, and there will be amendments to that legislation, uh, but they will be all very good amendments, and we will end up with some pretty strong legislation, I believe, um, affirming the right to housing. Okay, okay. Um, I also want to get to um, the work you're doing with the shift, if you would like to mention what that's about and what, what your objective, your mission is and, and, and your vision yeah. for that. Sure. So, you know, I started the shift um, a couple of years into my mandate as rapporteur, um, really because I knew that there was no way I could have the impact I would like to have uh, if I just try to address um, the current housing situation and the global housing crisis on my own, Mm -hmm. that the issue that Push the Film is about um, is so huge, and the financial actors have so much power and weight um, that I needed to join forces, first of all, with others in partnership, and we needed to create a global movement. As a, you know, there's that thought, you know, power by numbers. And I believe in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that. So the shift is really an attempt to reclaim housing as a human right and to push back against the idea that housing is a commodity uh, or, you know, something to be traded on stock markets. And um, so it's a coming together of a diverse set of actors. It's not aimed at only one group though city mayors have really come on board um, in numbers. So we now have 35 mayors from around the world who are committing to housing as a human right and trying to implement policies and laws um, that would curb its commodification. So cities like Barcelona, Amsterdam, Berlin, Paris, um, uh, Malmö, Sweden, Mexico City, Seoul, South Korea, um, Montevideo in Uruguay, like really a broad range of mayors have come together to um, reaffirm housing as a human right. Mm-hmm. And it's not just ribbon cutting. It's really um, a, the requ- a requirement of the shift is that whichever actor engages, they have to make a, a real commitment to doing something to implement housing as a human right. So in the case of cities, it would be getting rid of any laws that criminalize homelessness, for example, Mm -hmm. and it would be about trying to regulate and curb the behavior, for example, of short-term rental platforms like Airbnb, where those short-term rental platforms are having a negative effect on affordable stock, for example. Right. Um, But other actors are now coming on board, too. For example, national human rights institutions, not as sexy as mayors of cities and harder to harder for people to understand how important this is. But from my perspective, very important because national human rights institutions. So in the country of Canada, it would be like the Canadian Human Rights Commission or our provincial and territorial human rights commissions. You, you might say, well, well, why is it important that they be involved? Well, you know, a lot of people won't claim or try to claim the right to housing in a court. Mm-hmm. And in this country, it's very difficult to do that for a variety of reasons I won't get into now. Yeah. But 
people do feel closer to human rights commissions. They're closer to the ground. They're easier to navigate. You just fill out a complaint, you know, if you've got a complaint. And national human rights institutions are well situated to move forward on the issue of the right to adequate housing. Um, so, you know, because they understand law, they understand discrimination, they understand human rights. And mm -hmm. that's what this is about. Um, and so there's been huge interest recently from national human rights institutions from around the world, including Canada, but also um, from Indonesia, for example, and Chile and, and Scotland and South Africa. Um, so they're all joining the shift or will be joining the shift over time um, to you know, to help create a kind of cacophony of voices and action um, to say, hey, like, we are big, too, and we are out here in numbers. Of course, NGOs will be involved. I'm hoping eventually architects and even maybe some progressive private equity firms, if we can find some. Um, so and, and I realize we came to this stage without actually uh, explaining the, the premise of, of push. And the, the film does look at how private equity firms, um, Blackstone, you use as an example, but there are others um, and and. Uh, asset management firms um, that are buying up uh, low-income housing and making them effectively making them unaffordable. I, I I would say I mean the private equity firms did two things. So yeah. first they bought up foreclosed homes and right. they bought them cheap, you know, because it was after the global financial crisis and banks needed um, liquidity and money. Mm -hmm. And so the private equities went in and bought them at a cut rate and then rented them out to the very homeowners who'd been living there <laughs> right. before right. and rented them out at rates where they would, um, you know, profit and profit hugely. And so um, and then they end up selling them often as well at rates much, you know, doubling their investment easily. Mm -hmm. So in a quick period of time and so um that was their first move and then they moved on from the single family residence to multi-family dwellings apartment okay. in other words known as apartment buildings and that's when they've really started to have their global dominance mm -hmm. um so not just in the u.s i mean in with the foreclosed mortgages it was mostly in spain ireland and the U.S., uh, where we saw this unfold. And uh, it wasn't just Blackstone, it was other private equities. But where we're seeing the dominance of this model now is on multifamily dwellings, apartment buildings. And what they're looking for is undervalued, as they call it, undervalued property. That is property where people are paying an affordable rent. And it's often people in the service industry or in low, lower end jobs, not mm -hmm. only service industry, but includes service industry. If you look at who makes up in North America in particular, and, and but it also even in Europe, who makes up the bulk of the rental population? It tends to be um, moderate and low income people, right. right? So you can imagine the jobs that moderate and, and low income people have. And what's happening is when, once they buy these buildings, they supposedly fix them up and then they rent out the units at higher rates and they get around all sorts of laws and rental controls and stuff like that. They're very sophisticated actors. And then they do raise the rents so that um, really squeezing moderate income people to be paying more, which means they have less disposable income, which mm -hmm. means they're contributing less to the economy and lining um, the wallets of private investors. Uh, and it's completely forcing out low income people, you know, I mean, just forcing them out. So anyone in a minimum wage job 
is going to be hard pressed to live in a city these days. Um, so, you know, your local barista may be traveling two hours to get to their job or an hour and a quarter or whatever, you know, some distance. And I I visited folks out in California where this is really a huge phenomenon. I would go into various places and I just say, so where do you live? Not a single young person I met working at one of those types of places or in the service industry was living within an even 45 minute commute Mm. to their job. Mm -hmm. They were carpooling from hours away. I mean, it's crazy. And that's because that's the only place they could afford. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really, it's it's because it, we used to always say, you know, gentrification is the problem, gentrification. But it, you know, you obviously opened our eyes to seeing that it's it's that's not even you know it's well beyond that. It's taken on a whole different paradigm, yes. right? Um, exactly. And then and then you also came to see, and I know this is very convoluted and complicated. I'm not going to get into it, but how the the, the pension funds are the ones that are supporting, um, you know, the the work of these these private equity firms and asset management firms. Um, my question is, looking at this, how this is all shaping up, and 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 taking into account um, the the wonderful work that the shift is doing, and your other uh, your eff- other efforts, is, is there a way to really stop them, like uh, these these big firms, from doing their work? Is there a way to incentivize them, or maybe developers, or, or is it just a matter of the cities and the mayors, and like you said, the the human rights uh, organizations to take a bigger stand and to to make a change? Like, what do you think needs to happen? Yeah, so that's one of the things I'm working on. It's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I do think there's a way to stop these guys, and they are mostly guys. What I what I really feel needs to happen, though, is is something quite big. I'm I'm proposing that I help convene um, some kind of international symposium of diverse actors, including politicians or you know members of government yeah. ministers of housing for example some financial actors um like um maybe some on the private equity side if there are some progressives out there who might be interested mm-hmm. i actually wondered about the ceo of black rock not blackstone ceo larry fink right um said a little while ago um you know there is a real responsibility to um, contribute to social good through, and not just uh, aim for profits as investors. And um, yes. I think that's what was a really important statement. And I don't think we should. He wasn't talking about it in the in the terms in terms of financialization of housing. Um, but he but maybe if if we could reach him, um, he might be interested in having mm. a conversation with some other high level actors. Um, I, you know, so I, I'd like to have some kind of convening, but not just to have a conversation. I think we need to hammer out some directives, and I would like those directives to be human rights compliant. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we would have mayors there too. You know, someone like Attica Lau really knows how to deal with this stuff in a hands-on way. Um, I think it could be a really cool thing, and I think it's needed, and I think it's the only way um, we're going to solve this. People at the end of the film, for example, you know, when we have Q&A yeah. with audiences, they want to talk about solutions right away. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel we're not quite there yet. But I also feel like some of the solutions people are proposing are so micro. And this is a structural macro problem. Right. And you're like suggesting a housing cooperative or a land trust. Those are interesting ideas 
um, and maybe they could be scaled or something, but that's not what I'm on about here. I mean, mm-hmm. I think governments um, believe they have some economic interest in allowing this to happen. And I want to show them that one, they don't have, a, there's no economic value here for, for cities. Um, nothing is being contributed to the economy of a city. It is sometimes an influx of cash, sometimes uh, where new developments are going up. But these big financial actors are only buying existing units. Mm-hmm. So there's no um, benefit to the construction industry and the materials involved in construction, right? Right. That's not what these guys are about. And so there is no no real economic benefit. So I, I think a convening of some sort has to happen. Uh, and I am in the midst of thinking this through. I've been talking to a few people about it. So I suspect it will happen. Okay, well, hopefully do. Yeah. Also, the pensioners and the pension funds, I mean, that just to go back mm. to that for a second without getting into, but, you know, we, we are always talking about how people are trying to become more aligned with their investments and, and, and sustainable investing. And do you think that pension funds and pensioners and, and wanting to align their investments more sustainably, yeah. more specifically in mm. meaningful ways, you think that will, will also help move this forward a little bit? Yes, definitely. Oh, I definitely think there's a... Um, uh, uh, there could be a huge wave if we can get people who are paying into pension funds yeah. um, to start asking the right questions yeah. of their pension funds. I think that could be a huge wave for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of this money that private equities have is from pension funds. It's not that the pension funds don't shouldn't give their money to private equity right? or shouldn't invest in things it's just they shouldn't invest in residential real estate. Right. And so they could say to a, a, a private equity, we're happy to give you our millions and millions of dollars, but we don't want you to invest in residential real estate. Mm-hmm. So I've heard that there are some places where there are laws about public pension funds not being able to be invested into residential real estate. So I have to figure out oh. if that's true and if so, where. Okay. There's a lot to explore there. I think that is a really um, important aspect to this. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the film has definitely showed that. I think we went from looking at some of the frustrations to by the end of the film, we felt a little bit more positive that the, there's movement with your the shift. And um, are you yeah. optimistic? Um, well, you know, you don't like I've been an advocate for 20 years, more than 20 years. Uh, yeah. I don't expect change overnight. I have seen an amazing amount of change in the last five years as rapporteur. I mean, when I came into the position, people we're not saying everywhere I go, uh, housing is a right, not a commodity. Mm. And now that is like, uh, everyone says it, including governments at the UN. I'm hearing them on the floor, mm. you know? So I, and I do think a change in language is, is not, is not insignificant. It mm. may not be a change in action yet as much as we would like, but I, I see a lot of movement on the ground. If, you know, someone put to me recently, well, you know, aren't human rights kind of dead? Look at look at what's happening around the world, the the impunity of governments violating human rights. And I think the the idea is this, you know, the rise of populism and um, Donald Trump being elected as president and Bolsonaro and Brazil and others, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I, if you shift your gaze, look away from that there and look down at city mayors, at what's happening at the local level, at what people are saying and doing everyday people who are really living this reality you'll see a lot of change happening and a lot of unrest look at berlin a couple of weekends ago 40,000 people took to the streets right. to protest the 
affordability of housing and, you know, really hoping and demanding that there be some kind of a referendum on the nationalizing of apartment buildings so that um, people have affordable places to live and Mm -hmm. so that they can be under government control. So uh, I see lots of stuff afoot. So Mm -hmm. I am I'm not it's not about optimism or pessimism. It's about, you know, uh, this is a human right and we have to ensure that it's implemented. So just doing my job. Right. Uh, and, um, and I think things are moving forward. Okay. Okay. Well, that's probably the best approach anyway. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for listening to in the business of change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum.